إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا وسيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد So we've been discussing Iman in the Day of Judgment and all of the various things that will happen on the Day of Judgment. The last thing that we were discussing was about the intercession, the Shafa'ah. <clears throat> that on the Day of Judgment there will be certain intercessions that take place. One of them, <clears throat> one of them that we mentioned was when all of the people, <clears throat> when all of the people are resurrected, then the calamity of that day, it befalls them and they see the difficulty they are in. <coughs> so then they say to each other, أَمَا تَرَوْنَا مَا نَحْنُ فِيهِ أَمَا تَرَوْنَا مَا بَلَغَكُمْ Can you not see what we're in, this situation we're in? Can you not see what calamity has overcome us? Find somebody who will intercede for us with Allah. And so then as we mentioned that hadith, they go to the different prophets and messengers, and all of the prophets and messengers excuse themselves until they finally come to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and he is the one that does the intercession on that day. The second intercession of that day, and these are all from the types that are specific to the Prophet ﷺ. There are certain types of intercession that only the Prophet ﷺ will be able to do on that day. That one we mentioned is one. Number two, الشفاعه لِأَهْلِ الْجَنَّةِ فِي دُخُولِهَا فَأَهْلُ الْجَنَّةِ لَا يَدْخُلُونَ الْجَنَّةِ إِلَّا بِشَفَاعِةِ النَّبِيِّ صلى الله عليه وسلم The second intercession is for the people of paradise to enter paradise because when all of the events of the day of judgment have occurred and those who are going to enter paradise now come upon the gates of paradise, they find that the gates are closed. So again, the same similar type of thing occurs when they go to the different prophets and messengers seeking for someone to go and intercede with Allah on their behalf so that the gates of paradise can be opened. Eventually, after the prophets and messengers excuse themselves, 
they come to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and he is the one who intercedes with Allah for the gates of paradise to be opened and they are opened. The third intercession, the third shafa'ah that is specific to the Prophet ﷺ on that day is what? The first was when all of the people are resurrected and in that difficulty the sun is brought close within a mile, etc. Then they want to get out of that. So they go to the prophets and messengers until the Prophet Muhammad makes it. The second one, when the people of paradise arrive at paradise, they find the gates are closed. So then again, they go to the various prophets and messengers until finally the Prophet specifically is the one who makes that intercession. There is one more on the Day of Judgment that only the Prophet ﷺ makes, or one more intercession that is specific to him. For his uncle Abu Talib. The third intercession is the intercession that he makes for his uncle Abu Talib. في شفاعته صلى الله عليه وسلم لأبي طالب في تخفيف العذاب عنه. The intercession that he makes for his uncle Abu Talib for his punishment to be reduced. And so that is accepted and his punishment is reduced. Even though it is mentioned in the narration Abu Talib himself will still consider that reduced punishment to him as the most severe punishment. Even the most reduced punishment in the hellfire is a severe punishment for the person in it. So that is the third intercession that is specific to the Prophet ﷺ. Then there are other shafa'at other forms of intercession that occur on that day, and these other forms are not specific to the Prophet ﷺ. These other forms that we're going to mention now, scholars have highlighted how others besides the Prophet ﷺ may perform them too. So from those types, firstly, ذكر جماعة من العلماء أن من الشفاعات الشفاعة برفع أقوام من أهل الجنة. One of the intercessions is for those who are in paradise to be elevated in rank in paradise. For those who are in paradise, for their ranks in paradise to be elevated and raised. That is mentioned as a type of intercession that occurs on that day. 
But that is not something specific to the Prophet ﷺ because there are narrations that indicate others may do this via dua, like the dua of the son for his father. And so the father is raised in ranks in paradise due to the dua of his child. So that raising of rank in paradise, elevation in paradise, is not specific to just the shafa'a of the Prophet wasallam. Also, Shafa'a for the people of Tawheed and intercession, a Shafa'a for the people of Tawheed who have ended up in the hellfire. For them to be removed from the hellfire. Some of the people of Tawheed may end up in the hellfire. So an intercession occurs for them to be removed from the hellfire and placed into paradise. For a group of the people of Tawheed who entered the fire, for them to be removed from it. And it is of course possible for the people of Tawheed, some from amongst them, to enter the fire if their evil deeds, their wrongdoings, outweigh their good deeds. But their evil deeds and their wrongdoings do not have shirk within them. If they had committed shirk and died upon shirk, then they would be in the hellfire forever. Not people of Tawheed then. But people of Tawheed who fell into sins and they fell into wrongs and into misdeeds. And as a consequence of those other wrongs and misdeeds, they end up in the hellfire temporarily at first. And then after they have received some punishment and have been cleansed from those sins, they are then removed and placed into paradise. So there are narrations about that, about how some of the Usatul Muhyiddin, the sinners from the people of Tawheed are in the fire, and their believing brothers and sisters they're believing, uh, the other believers, they make dua to Allah to have them removed. And so it mentions in the narration how Allah tells them to go and remove those with iman, half an atom of iman, less than that. The point is in that narration, it is the believers, generally on the whole, who come and ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala regarding their brothers and sisters. So that is another type of intercession that may not be specific to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Moving on then. 
to the books that the people will be given on that day. The books of deeds. The book of deeds that will be given on that day, that is the deeds that the angels, they record for you during your lives. And that is mentioned in the Qur'an, وَإِنَّ عَلَيْكُمْ لَحَافِظِينَ كِرَامًا كَاتِبِينَ That indeed upon you are the guardians, the noble writers, scribes, the angels that write down all of your deeds, all of your statements and your actions, every affair recorded and written down. In another ayah, وَأَمَا يَلْفِظُ مِنْ قَوْلٍ إِلَّا لَدَيْهِ رَقِيبٌ عَتِيدٌ that he does not utter a word, except that with him is Raqibun Atid, in reference again to the angels writing down every deed, every action of yours. It mentions in one narration, وَإِنَّ الْعَبْدَ لَيَتَكَلَّمُ بِكَلِمَةٍ مِّنْ سَخَطِ اللَّهِ لا يلقي لها بالا يهوي بها إلى جهنم. That maybe a servant says a word of evil, something that is displeasing to Allah, a single word, a tiny comment, that he doesn't even pay attention to and completely forgets about it after making it. The hadith says, maybe a servant makes the odd comment that is displeasing to Allah. And no focus is given to it, no attention is given to it. But on the day of judgment, that one statement, it could be the cause for that person to be cast into the hellfire. That one statement may be the end result, the reason why it tips and you are thrown into the hellfire. And the opposite is mentioned also that a person may say a word of good, a small word of good he pays no attention to, but that small goodness written down and recorded by the angels, then that may be the cause in the end, for you to enter paradise. So every single thing is written and recorded. Then it's mentioned in the evidences how these books will be presented and given to the servants. And it mentions in some of the ayat, فَأَمَّا مَنْ أُوْتِيَ كِتَابَهُ بِيَمِينِهِ فَسَوْفَ يُحَاسَبُ حِسَابًا يَسِيرًا That as for the one who is given his book in his right hand, then he will be given a light accountability. 
the one who is given his book in his right hand, then he will be given a light accountability. وَيَنْقَلِبُ إِلَىٰ أَهْلِهِ مَسْرُورًا And he will then go to his family in joy and happiness. وَأَمَّا مَنْ أُوْتِيَ كِتَابَهُ وَرَاءَ ظَهْرِ فَسَوْفَ يَدْعُ ثَبُورًا But as for the one who is given his book on that day behind his back, not with his right hand in front of him. Behind his back he is presented his book. Then he will lament and call for destruction upon himself. Rather be dead and finished than have to face the consequences that now arise. So this clearly indicates that the books will be given to the people on that day. Some people given their books in their right hand. Some of them it mentions behind their backs though, the evildoers. In another ayah, it mentions, وَإِذَا الصُّحُفُ نُشِرَتْ when those books and scrolls are laid bare, they are laid out, meaning they are presented and given, they are spread, indicating again that those books are given on that day. In another ayah, اِقْرَأْ كِتَابَكَ كَفَى بِنَفْسِكَ الْيَوْمَ عَلَيْكَ حَسِيبًا Read your book. It is sufficient on this day as an accountability upon yourself. Read your book, it is sufficient on this day as an accountability upon yourself. So these evidences, they clearly indicate that the books will be given on that day. Ajma'a salaf Ibn Rajab said, Ajma'a salaf الصالح على أن الذي عن يمينه يكتب الحسنات والذي عن شماله يكتب السيئات ابن رجب mentions that the angel which is on your right hand side then it is agreed that it writes your good deeds and the angel that is on your left hand side, it is agreed by the Salaf, Salaf al-Salih, that it writes your evil deeds. The angel on the right hand side writes your good deeds, and the angel on the left hand side writes your evil deeds. Where exactly is the angel... So Ibn Rajab mentioned that the Salaf are agreed, the angel that is on your right hand side writes the good deeds, and the angel that is on your left hand side writes the evil deeds. Where are these two angels exactly relative to you? That is unknown. It cannot be said on your shoulder or on your side. It cannot be said specifically of their location. 
but the angel on the right and the angel on the left. That is all it is left at. اتفقوا على أن الحسنات والسيئات تكتب. They are agreed. The scholars are agreed that your righteous actions are written down, your good deeds, and that your wrongdoings are written down, your evil deeds. But they differ over what? What's left? Bad deeds are written down, they're agreed. If you do a tawbah, then it's fine for them. The good deeds are written down by consensus. The bad deeds are written down by consensus. One thing though, there's not a consensus on. Allah kept within. Here, the point that they're making is the mubah, which are neither technically from your good deeds, neither from your bad deeds, the mubah. Something which is just mubah. uh, An action which is not specified as an act of worship. It's not something that is an act of disobedience. It's an everyday thing, something that you do. Are those everyday things that are neither acts of worship and obedience in particular, neither are they sins, just your normal average everyday things. Are they all written down as well that you do? Or is it just the actual acts of worship and good deeds and the actual acts of evil and bad deeds, your everyday things otherwise, are they all written down too or not? That is differed about amongst the scholars. However, what appears to be the case, and what appears to be stronger, is that everything you do is written down. The mubah, obviously you're not going to be accountable upon it. There's nothing to be accountable upon the everyday mubah. Upon the everyday mubah types of actions, there's no accountability on them. But they'll be written. That is what appears to be the case. Everything you do is written. Your good deeds, your bad deeds, where the accountability occurs, and the mubah, it's written, but there's no accountability upon that. Then there's the issue everybody is mentioning, and we'll quickly just mention this before the prayer. مَنْ تَابَ مِنْ سَيِّئَةِ فَلَنْ يُعَاقَبْ عَلَيْهَا Somebody who commits an evil deed but then sincerely repents from it and he's given the forgiveness, then obviously he's not going to be held accountable upon that sin in the afterlife again. Somebody who commits a sin and they sincerely repent and Allah forgives them, then they're not going to be held accountable upon that sin in the afterlife. They've been forgiven. But... Will that sin remain written down in their book or not? Yes. Yes. Can Allah wipe it off? That's what I think. 
Now you're asking a question to a question. I'm asking the question. He's, he's written down, but he's, uh, he's, he's written down, but on the day of judgment, he's not, uh, he's not accountable. So there's a difference of opinion on that too. Some scholars, they say, if you do a bad deed, you do a sin, but you sincerely repent and seek forgiveness for it, and you're given that forgiveness from Allah, then it will be wiped out of your records. And on the day of judgment, it won't be there. Gone. You've been forgiven for it. It's gone. Any evidence for that though? Well, <laughs> evidence... In al-hasanat, yudhibna. Okay. That's an evidence. Good deeds, they uh, take away the bad deeds. But maybe the meaning of that is that the accountability is taken away. Is it specific that it means the writing is taken away? Maybe there is another evidence much more specific to writing being taken away. Is there a hadith when you, you uh, seek forgiveness in a, in a period of time? Is it six hours? Or? Everybody knows it. Put your hands up. If you've read through, attended classes, listened to lectures on the 40 hadith of Imam al Nawawi. Hands up high, high, high. <laughs> so, what's the answer? Ittaqillaha haythu ma kunt. Fear Allah wherever you are. Wa atbi'i sayyi'ata bil hasana. And follow up a bad deed with a good deed. Tamhuha. It will wipe it out. That is the, the strongest evidence scholars used to say. If you do a bad deed, but then you repent and seek forgiveness and do good deeds, hadith says it will wipe it out. They say that's the closest we can get to an evidence indicating that it won't be in your books anymore. It's wiped out. But others, they say that uh, it will remain in the book. That's the second opinion now, that it will remain in the books but obviously you will not be held accountable upon it on the day of judgment. The only thing left to mention here is how the books are given to the people. We've already briefly mentioned one ayah. It mentioned that the righteous are given their books in their right hands. And it mentioned the disobedient are given their books behind their backs. And there is one more ayah which mentions how the disobedient are given their books in their left hands. So the scholars, they said, the righteous in your right hands in front of you. The disobedient, ayah says, in your left hand behind your back. Scholars mention three opinions, ijtihad, as to what that could mean, combining the ayat. So they said, okay, it's going to be given to you in your left hand behind your back. Literally in your left hand behind your back as a dishonor to you. As a dishonor. Because the righteous person with honor, he takes it in his right hand in front of him. The disobedient one in dishonor with his left hand behind his back. Others they said it is possible. 
possible combining the ayat that the hand of the person, the left hand of the person on that day is removed from him and placed onto his back. And then he receives his book. And others they mention perhaps his hand physically is caused to go through his body, through his chest and come out from his back to receive his book. Ijtihad from the scholars in terms of what it could mean. What we know though, what we know is that it's left hand and it's behind the back. How exactly those interpretations are possible interpretations. We'll stop there for the prayer. We'll pray and then after the prayer we'll carry on with a small section further before rounding off for today insha'Allah ta'ala. Alhamdulillah. والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن والاه. So just to mention a couple of small chapters before we round off tonight. The next section here is regarding how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will descend on that day to judge between the people. Allah Jalla Jalalu Lifaslil Qada as it is known as Lifaslil Qada. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will descend on that day to the people upon the resurrection for the accountability between them. And we know in the texts that there are several occasions where it's mentioned that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala descends. So what are these instances mentioned in the Qur'an and the Sunnah, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala descends? In the last third of the night, that is one, in the last Third of the night, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala descends to the lowest heaven and says, مَنْ يَسْتَغْفِرُنِي فَأَغْفِرَ لَهُ Who is seeking my forgiveness and I will forgive them. مَنْ يَسْأَلُنِي فَأَعْطِيَهُ Who is seeking anything from me and I will give it to him. All this occurs in the last third of the night. That is one time where Allah descends. One is obviously right here, like we've just said, on the Day of Judgment, Allah descends upon the people of, uh, the people at the land of resurrection to judge between them. So what is the third? On Yawm Arafah. It's mentioned how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala descends on the day of Arafah, when the people are in Arafah, and they are making the dua. So those are some of the instances that are mentioned uh, regarding Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala descending. And this is one of those examples on the day of judgment, Allah will descend to make that judgment and accountability between the people or for the people, every person. Then going on to the actual issue of accountability on that day. 
accountability on that day الحساب معناه توقيف الله عز وجل العباد على أعمالهم واتلاعهم عليها وتذكيرهم ما نسوه منها وتقريرهم بذلك the meaning of accountability on that day is that Allah presents the actions of that person to him and that person sees his actions, remembers what he may have forgotten and acknowledges what he's done. He sees, he's shown what he did, perhaps what he had forgotten. He sees that, is shown that, recognizes that, acknowledges that. That is all a part of that accountability on that day. In Al-Baqarah, it mentions, وَإِن تُبْدُوا مَا فِي أَنفُسِكُمْ أَوْ تُخْفُوهُ يُحَاسِبُكُمْ بِهِ اللَّهِ That if you make apparent that which is in of yourself, or you conceal it, then Allah will hold you accountable regardless. You will be held accountable upon your deeds, whether you make them apparent or you attempt to conceal them and hide them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will hold you accountable upon what you do. In another ayah, فَوَرَبِّكَ لَنَسْأَلَنَّهُمْ أَجْمَعِينَ عَمَّا كَانُوا يَعْمَلُونَ that by your Lord we will certainly ask all of them about that which they used to do. In another ayah, Inna ilayna iyabahum thumma inna alayna hisabahum. That indeed to us is their return, and then upon us is their accountability. So certainly this accountability it will occur. In the hadith of Aisha radiyallahu anha, she said, I heard the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam say, لَيْسَ أَحَدٌ يُحَاسَبُ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ إِلَّا هَلَكٌ There is no one who will be held accountable on the day of judgment except that he will be destroyed. فَقُلْتُ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ أَلَيْسَ قَدْ قَالَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى So then Aisha رضي الله عنها, she says, O Messenger of Allah, what about the ayah when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, فَأَمَّا مَنْ أُوْتِيَ كِتَابَهُ بِيَمِينِهِ فَسَوْفَ يُحَاسَبُ حِسَابًا يَسِيرًا That as for those who are given their books in their right hand, they will have a light, an easy accountability. Because now in the narration the Prophet ﷺ has said, those who have the accountability on that day, they will all be destroyed. So then Aisha radiallahu anha asks, what about the ayah, what does it mean then? That those who are given the books in their right hand will have an easy accountability, meaning they won't be destroyed. فَقَالَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ وسلم, So then the Prophet ﷺ said to her, in explaining the difference between the two types of accountability on that day. 
the two forms of accountability that occur on that day, two different types of accountability that occur on that day. So he said to her, إِنَّمَا ذَلِكَ الْعَرْضِ وَلَيْسَ أَحَدٍ يُنَاقَشُ الْحِسَابِ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ إِلَّا عِذِّبٍ He said that, in reference to the ones who are given their books in their right hands, they will have a light accountability. He said that is in reference to what is known as العرض. A presentation, you may say, as a loosely connected word in English. That is the presentation of your deeds. But as for the one who is given the analysis and cross-check on his deeds, gone into detail with his deeds, then they will be punished. So there are two types of accountability. One is a presentation of your deeds. You see that, you recognize that, you acknowledge that. The presentation of what you've done, you see, recognize, acknowledge all of these actions of yours. But then after having presented these deeds to you, and you acknowledging them, that's it, you're allowed to pass on. The second type though, is that the deeds are presented to you, what you did, your actions, but then you are questioned about everything, and everything is analyzed and broken up, and details, the munaqasha. If that occurs, then that person will be destroyed. So there is a general presentation of the deeds, that is one type of accountability. And then there is the actual analysis and debate of your deeds, then that is the one who is destroyed. Two types of accountability that occur on that day. So, أَمَّا الْمَقْصُودُ بِالْعَرْضَ أَن تُعْرَضْ عَلَى الْمُؤْمِنَ أَعْمَالُهُ حَتَّى يَعْرِفَ مِنَّةَ اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِ فِي سِتْرِ ذُنُوبِهِ عَلَيْهِ فِي الدُّنْيَا وَعَافُهُ عَنْهَا فِي الْآخِرَةِ So those who are given the presentation, then they see all of the wrongs they had done, they see all of the misdeeds they had done, they see all of the sins they had done, They see it all, it's all presented to them. But then, that is all done in order for them to recognize the tremendous blessing of Allah upon them. That despite all of this, and the misdeeds in there, Allah is allowing them to pass. So by seeing all of their deeds, they recognize how low they were in their actions and in their wrongs and the sins they'd done in their lifetime. And they then recognize what a great blessing and tremendous virtue of Allah it is upon them, that they are still being allowed to pass and go. So it is a means of recognition of the blessing of Allah, and a means of recognition of how Allah concealed your sins for you in this world, and then pardons them for you in the afterlife. That is the one who has the presentation of his deeds. It's mentioned by Al-Imam Ahmed 
that Aisha radiyallahu anha used to say or said, سَمِعْتُ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ يَقُولْ فِي بَعْضُ صَلَاتِهِ أَلَّهُمَّ حَاسِبْنِي حِسَابًا يَصِيرًا That the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم used to say or mentioned in his prayer, Oh Allah, give me the light accountability. So then Aisha radiyallahu anha asked the Prophet ﷺ afterwards, what is the light accountability? What is that easy accountability? So the Prophet ﷺ explained, أَنْ يُنْظَرَ فِي كِتَابِهِ فَيُتَجَاوَزُ That it is looked into the book of the person. And all of his sins will be there. He will have done sins. He will have wrongs. It is looked into his book, but it is allowed to pass. That is the light accountability upon a person. But then the Prophet said to her, Indeed, the one who is questioned, detailed analysis on his deeds on that day, O Aisha, he will be destroyed. So there is that two types of accountability on that day. A type whereby you are presented with your affairs, you recognize them, but then you're allowed to pass. You recognize the great blessing of Allah upon you despite your shortcomings. You recognize the mercy of Allah upon you that He concealed your sins in this world and pardoned you in the afterlife. But the other type is where a person is not allowed to just pass but in fact it is gone into in detail, the munaqasha, the analysis, then that person is the one destroyed on that day. Some issues to mention here, هَلْ يُحَاسَبُ الْكُفَّارِ أَمْ لَا يُحَاسَبُونَ The kuffar, are they given this accountability or not? Because of course the kuffar, there is no possibility of paradise. Kuffar who died upon shirk, died upon worshipping others besides Allah, they are going to be in the hellfire forever. So do they need to have an accountability as such? Difference of opinion? <laughs> accountability, will it happen to them or not though? So, الصواب المقطوع به أنهم يحاسبون محاسبة تقريع وتوبيخ that they are definitely given accountability even though we know their result is going to be the hellfire but they are given accountability as a rebuke upon them that here it is these are your deeds these are your wrongs this is your, 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 the shirk and your lives upon disobedience to Allah, a rebuke upon them. Their accountability is a rebuke upon them. It is establishing upon them their misdeeds and their ills and the justice of why they are entering hellfire, a rebuke upon them for what they've done. That's what it is. It's not an accountability to see whether they'll pass or not. They have failed. But it's an accountability of rebuke upon them. Also, are there any people then 
who are exempt from accountability. So that's one narration. Those who are exempt from accountability on that day, then it mentions the 70,000 يَدْخُلُ الْجَنَّةِ مِنْ أُمَّةِ سَبْعُونَ أَلْفًا بِغَيْرِ حِسَابٍ هُمُ الَّذِينَ لَا يَسْتَرْقُونَ وَلَا يَتَطَيَّرُونَ وَعَلَى رَبِّهِمْ يَتَوَكَّلُونَ That there are 70,000 from my Ummah who will enter paradise without any accountability. And they are the ones هُمُ الَّذِينَ لَا يَسْتَرْقُونَ And that means they don't ask for ruqyah. So what's the ruling of ruqyah then? You can do it for yourself. Somebody offers it, you can take it. The Prophet ﷺ had ruqya done to him. Jibreel did ruqya upon the Prophet ﷺ. So what does it mean? 70,000 will enter paradise. One of their characteristics, they do not seek ruqya. And this is the better wording. Yastarqoon. In one narration it just mentions yarqoon, that they do ruqya. But it's seeking ruqya. And it's very much like what you see these days. How often do you hear people saying, do you know anybody who can do ruqya? Do you know anybody, we need somebody who can do ruqya? We need somebody who can read upon my son, my father, my this, my that. And they're ringing around everyone and they're asking everyone, and ruqya, ruqya, who can do ruqya? We need somebody to do ruqya. It is as though they have misunderstood where they are supposed to be placing their trust. Their trust is to be placed in Allah. Not the Raqi, find me a Raqi. It is as though they have misplaced their trust to a degree. Hence the meaning of this, those who do not seek Ruqya, that they don't go out there actively seeking and requesting somebody come to Ruqya, etc. Rather they put their trust in Allah. And they read upon themselves, they put their trust in Allah, read upon themselves, don't go out there, who's Ruqya, Ruqya, Raqi, we need somebody. That type of behavior is not recommended. Is it allowed though for somebody to come and do ruqya upon somebody else? Of course, yes, it is allowed. It's not haram. But the point is a person puts his trust in Allah, reads upon himself. It is in fact more effective that a person upon himself or a person upon his own family is more effective than going out there, find me a raqi, find me somebody who can come and read. The second point, وَلَا يَتَطَيَّرُونَ What does that mean? They don't believe in bad omens. Suspicions. The black cat, the 13th of Friday, under the ladder, the broken mirror, horseshoe, all those things. They don't believe in the bad omens and the bad suspicions. In the olden days, in the times of Jahiliya, they would go out in the morning and throw a stone into a tree. Birds are sitting in the tree. If the birds flew out in a particular direction, that meant good luck for the day. Go out and do your thing. But when you throw the stone, if the birds flew out in another particular direction, that was the pessimism for the day. 
they've flown out that way. Must be a bad luck day today. Stay in your homes. Don't go out. Don't go do your trade in the market. That was one type of omen they used to have. They used to believe that if an owl came and sat on your home, on your roof, then this was a type of omen that you must go and seek revenge for someone. Various types of things they used to believe in and various things that exist these days amongst the people, Friday the 13th and other things that they mention. So a person doesn't get involved in any of that, rather they put their trust in Allah. There is one more that is mentioned as well in the narration, wala yaktawun, that they don't uh, do the cauterization. The heart in the olden days to cure a wound or an injury, to stop the blood and clot the blood at a cut, they would get a, 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 a hot rod, metal piece that is extremely hot, it looks orange. And put it on there, so then it blocks that blood, makes it clot, and the blood doesn't come out. Cauterization, they do some forms of it now with lasers. So these types of things, cauterization, again the scholars mention it's permissible, but it's something that causes harm to you. Clearly it's painful when you do cauterization. So for that type of reason it's mentioned, they don't do that either. Anybody else who is exempt? Huh? Alambiya mm. will come to in a moment. That will come to as well, but linked to this narration first. But this hadith here, 70,000, everybody's heard of this narration. 70,000 who will enter paradise without accountability. A narration that very few have heard of though, linked to this narration, is that actually the figure is a lot bigger than 70,000. It mentions in a narration, مَعَ كُلِّ There is a narration that with every thousand from the 70,000, with every thousand, there's another 70,000. Which means the end figure is a lot bigger than just 70,000 who will enter without accountability. What therefore of the prophets then? فَإِنْ أُرِيدَ بِمُحَاسَبَتِهِمْ سُؤَالُهُمْ هَلْ بَلَّغُ الدَّعْوَ إِلَىٰ أُمَامِهِمْ فَنَعَمْ وَهَذَا مِنْ أَجْلِ حِكْمَةٍ عَظِيمًا وَهِيَ الزِّيَادَةِ فِي إِقَامَةِ الْحُجَّةِ عَلَىٰ أُمَامِهِمْ Accountability of the prophets, if we mean... Will they be questioned on the day of judgment as to whether they conveyed the message, the revelation they were given or not? Then yes, they will be questioned on that. That is, in order to further establish the evidence upon their nations, that indeed, yes, we did convey, they will answer, we conveyed as a further establishment of evidence upon the nations that they were sent to. And that is perhaps the tafsir of the ayah, فَلَنَسْأَلَنَّ الَّذِينَ أُرْسِلَ إِلَيْهِمْ وَلَنَسْأَلَنَّ الْمُرْسَلِينَ That indeed we will ask the ones they were sent to, and the ones who were sent, we will ask them, the prophets and messengers, did they convey 
And of course they did. And it will therefore be another establishment of the evidence upon their nations. The first of the nations who will gain or will have this accountability on that day will be the ummah of this Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. This ummah will be the first of the nations to be held accountable on that day. And there is a clear narration. نَحْنُ آخِرُ الْأُمَمُ وَأَوَّلُ مَنْ يُحَاسَبُ We are the last of the nations, the last prophet, the last ummah, but the first to be given the accountability. It's also mentioned that when this accountability of the people occurs, in terms of between people, Justice being done between people, the first thing that is done is upon the issue of murder. That is the first justice that is done between people, fiddima. And as for the person himself, the first thing you'll be held accountable upon from your actions is the prayer. Hadith mentions, The first thing that will be judged between the people is the blood, the murders and the killings and the, the bloods that were spilt. And then it mentions in another narration, The first thing that the people will be held accountable upon in their deeds will be their prayer. That is where we'll round off on today. The next time we're going to begin on the chapter regarding the weighing scales on the Day of Judgment. The balance on the Day of Judgment, the weighing scales on the Day of Judgment, how your good deeds and your bad deeds are weighed up and balanced up in the weighing scale, and what happens, what actually goes into the weighing scales, what types of your good deeds go into the weighing scales? What else can go into your weighing scale besides your good deeds? So various types of topics that will be linked to the topic of the weighing scale, the balance on the Day of Judgment. That is where we'll begin with insha'Allah ta'ala in the next session in two weeks time. So any questions up to there then? Before we round off today. You know, you know in, example, in uh, back and forth, example, in Yemen, what we call there, some people use that habit. For example, they use, as you mentioned, like like stopping the blood, the clot blood. They get a hot iron and they, mm, they, mm. And they put it in the head. What is that? It's kind of shirk. Or no, no, it's permissible. So they do, but, but they don't do it just for stop the blood. They do it for sex. This guy is behaving naughty or is kind of crazy to make him... Punishment. Something like, no, no punishment. Say that he's, he's not... Is to make him feel better, like because he's not right or something like that. Well, he's right, but just do it for the sake of that. So, what is the hukum in that? No, that's not permissible. <laughs> they use cauterization or forms of cauterization, a hot rod or something, on somebody that they feel maybe mentally is and all there, and this will correct them. That isn't something established or proven in any medical way or in any other way that you use this technique to. Fix somebody up who isn't quite right. That's not mentioned anywhere. I'm not aware of that anywhere. If anybody has any evidence, this is something to be done. In that kind of situation, then you bring it, like we said in religion, 
Nothing is permissible unless you bring us the evidence for it. So I don't know of any evidence to do that. So that wouldn't be permissible to do, to use hot rods and irons upon people. It's like what they do nowadays. Some of these uh, people who do ruqya, they bring out, mashallah, electric rods. Electrocute you. They say they're going to take out the jinn and they're going to do this and do that. This type of thing, not really, it's not, it's not what you do basically. You mentioned about a righteous son who doing prayers and dua for his father in the grave, his father will reach a high place in paradise. Mm. I've been told today that if the son is a hafiz, the position is even higher. Is this correct? Maybe. I don't know of an evidence. I don't remember any hadith or something like that. Possibly though. It could just be in a general type of, in the context of raising your children upon righteousness making them into hafidh, that your tarbiyah led to this. Perhaps there is some generality like that to it. Maybe there is a specific narration, I don't know. I don't know if there is a specific narration about your son or your children being hafal and that it raises you higher. Maybe there is, but I don't know of the specific narration. Two questions, is that? First one is, uh, if someone avoids uh, to mock with uh, people or with certain things, with the affair that, that, that things going to affect him. Is that from bad omens? If somebody... Avoids to mock with someone. Avoids to? Mock with okay. someone. With some, someone with certain things. To mock? Yeah, to mock. To mock. To make a joke. Or to make a fun out of uh, someone. Somebody avoids making jokes yes, about yes, someone. Yes, yes. In uh-huh. order that he doesn't get that same uh, problem. For example, if someone avoids with a blind man. And he doesn't do that because he's afraid that he will be blind because of that. Is that from bad omens or? Uh... It's from bad. It's from bad manners, let alone bad omens. <laughs> so somebody's gonna. Say, it's like saying, so somebody would typically mock someone for their deficiencies, but because he fears he may be afflicted by, he won't. You don't do that not because of that fear. You don't do it because it's haram, impermissible to be mocking the people for their deficiencies in the first place. So that, it is incorrect, you're right. It's incorrect for that person to have that belief. But it's incorrect before you even get to that belief to do that action in the first place. Hmm. Anything else? And the second question was no. about, um, like brother mentioned, is there not a hadith about if someone does a bad deed that it will, uh, that the angel will, write, will wait for six hours uh, before, before writing it down and if someone does tawbah before those six hours, that it won't be written down? There are some narrations which indicate that meaning, but there is discussion over the validity of those narrations and the validity of certain time periods. Whether it can be established as a fact from the narrations of certain time periods and hours and six hours, there is a debate between the scholars over the validity of that, whether it's correct or not. What the conclusion is, I don't know. I can ask, you know, uh, I know it's to do with all this, because of Iman. Uh, you know, in abroad, when, when uh, they use the church, like the culture, like when you arrive home or whatever, or they use like wedding or whatever, they put a sheep around you. I don't know what is a custom or whatever. Or they sheep? crack, yeah, yeah, or they crack the egg or something, say this will whatever, help you, better wedding, whatever, is that class shirk or... Yeah, that would be classed as impermissible. Mm. Crack an egg or 
put a sheep around you saying it's going to bring you good luck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's impermissible. Clearly impermissible. It's a cross, a cross <coughs> finger. Yeah, a cross finger, yeah. yeah. A cross finger, touch wood, all these things. Impermissible. Completely impermissible. And, uh, you know, taking pictures, we know there's different opinions of scholars of pictures. So people say you can take the other body, but don't take the head picture. No, is that allowed as well? Photographs, taking pictures... Generally, everybody knows the narrations about the impermissibility of picture-making. Allah Allah's curse is upon the picture-makers. So we know picture-making is haram. What comes into picture-making? The obvious. You draw with a pencil, you draw with a paintbrush, you sculpt something and you make a picture there. Making pictures, the obvious things that we understand in making pictures. Is photography, using these devices now, also within the boundaries of picture making, in the same category as somebody using a pencil, somebody using paintbrushes, somebody using some other technique, and making pictures? Is photography the same as that? According to some scholars, and it appears to be the strongest opinion, then yes, photography is the same as that. You are making a picture. Whether you're using a pencil or a paintbrush or your finger to press a button, you have made that picture now. You have made that picture. And therefore, you are in that narration. The other point as well, they say linguistically. Now, in Arabic, somebody who comes along and takes pictures. That person, the ismul fa'il for him is musawwir. He is a musawwir, a photographer, somebody taking pictures. Hadith says, Allahu musawwirin Curse of Allah upon the picture makers. In Arabic right now, you still call a person who takes a photograph as a picture maker the same word. So as Shaykh Al-Fawzan mentioned, and it appears to be strong, that pictures and uh, photographs, they come under this. And then he says, he mentioned somewhere, maybe Kitab al-Tawheed, He said, how are you going to tell us now that photography, making a picture in this photographic manner by pressing buttons or doing whatever, that you are not classed as a picture maker and you are definitely outside of being a musawwir upon what evidence? How are you certain of that? What we are certain of is the opposite, that this is generally and loosely within the bounds of picture making. That it's not in those bounds is much more difficult to stand upon and make that point. So he says, look, picture making, photographs are picture making. And therefore photography is impermissible of living things. Then you come to this topic of taking a picture but not putting the head in. Technically then, that's not picture making. If you take a, a picture of somebody from the, their legs or their, their arm or something... It's not a living thing. The arm by itself isn't a living thing. The, the legs of a person by themselves aren't a living thing. Body parts aren't living things by themselves. So that technically isn't picture making. But the point is, when people ask those types of things, why, I mean, what is the, what is the, the need and the desperation that you have to take a picture of a person? Okay, I'll just keep his head out. What are you going to do with the body of a person? 
the picture of that person's body, you're going to have memories of what his body used to look like when he was small. So what is this fanaticism with photographs? And we need to have pictures and photographs of everything. There is no need for it. So a person shouldn't be asked, you know, be getting into these levels of saying, okay, but what if I just take the picture from like this and if I take a photograph like that, is it okay? Just leave photographs in the first place. What do you require from the photographs? The other opinion that some scholars may mention is that photographs do not come into picture making. Because another one of the explanations of why picture making is haram in the narrations, it says, because within it is a... The soul in the pictures, but it is as though you are competing with Allah in His creation, as though you are trying to make what Allah has made in creation. You're trying to paper mache or sculpture or paint a picture of what Allah has made in creation. And that is something they can do very accurately in terms of copying. There is that artist. He did a self-portrait of himself, painted himself so accurately that he sent it off to apply for a passport. The passport office did not notice this was a painting. They thought it was a photograph. That accurately they do it. So is this not now competition? What the narration say, as though you are competing to make the creation as though Allah has crea- as, as Allah has created it. He painted himself so good that when they, they did the passport application, they didn't realize this is a painting, it's not even a photograph. Small photograph-sized painting he sent it. So good and gloss and everything how he did it. So one of the things mentioned is competing with the creation of Allah. So the scholars say, when you take a photograph, some of them say, some opinions, and it's not the stronger opinion. They say, when you take a photograph... The photograph is not competing with the creation of Allah. Because it is the creation of Allah. Just like when you look in a mirror, that reflection is you. It's not something you've tried to compete with Allah's creation in making. It is you exactly. A photograph is you exactly. There is no element of trying to compete or anything. It's you exactly. No element of competition with the creation of Allah. So some scholars upon that type of reasoning say photographs are okay. But like we said, they are not. As Shaykh Al-Fawzan, his explanation is very strong. The narrations are there. They highlight the severe punishment of the picture makers. And as a Shaykh Al-Fawzan said, how can you feel safe that as a photographer, which is what you are then when you're taking pictures with your cameras and phones, that you don't enter into the narrations about picture makers. A person who takes a picture on his phone is a picture maker. So certainly that is what should be done, i.e. you do not take photographs of living things and ask for bodies and parts and things. It's unnecessary and it appears to be something that there's no need for. Videos is a different topic altogether and there is a much bigger discussion and debate amongst the scholars as to whether videos comes into it, because videos are, by their very nature, moving pictures. That's what they are, moving pictures. They are pictures, but they are moving pictures. 
multiple pictures, multiple screens, multiple shots that come together to give you a moving impression of the image. So in the end though, it is a moving image. Even though it begins as multiple still images. So as a consequence of it being a moving image, it's not a still picture which is what typically the taswir is. Then some of the scholars, many of the scholars have a much more open discussion with that topic. Many of them have the position of a tawaqquf. They say, I can't say it's halal, I can't say it's haram, Allah alam. Some of them allow it. A Shaykh al-Uthameen, for example, he allows videos for da'wah purposes, certainly. I've not read anything about general purposes, but for da'wah purposes, maslaha, that you allow the recording to occur, that it's streamed, especially in these days, the way it is, and social media, and YouTube, and these things. If the lectures are recorded and put on there, you will get maybe 10,000 views on the YouTube, as opposed to maybe two or 300 views on the the, the, the sound cloud and the audio files, it's just the way it is these days. So Shaykh al-Uthaymeen said, there's a maslaha in that. There is a maslaha to allow videos for da'wah purposes, for it to be streamed and for people to see TV, these kinds of things for da'wah purposes, for the du'at, for the mashayikh. To do that, there is a maslaha, as Shaykh al-Uthaymeen said. Other scholars still don't agree with it though. Some scholars say, no, no such thing as TV, cameras, videos, forget it. But that's a discussion amongst the scholars. Sorry for I want to ask uh, how about uh, the geologic science book where they show, show the body part or the, the body part of the human. Bio, biology books or any other books that have pictures of living things for necessity of education, the scholars allow it for kids. There's leniency in that. For example, a young child, you want to teach them what an eagle is, what a bear is, what a lion is. To teach them those things as a three, four, five-year-old, they need to see pictures of what, what is what. You can't just describe the animals to them and they'll picture them in their head. You've got to show them pictures for them to understand what's what. So for educational purposes, if there is a necessity and a requirement, then there is some leniency from the scholars for those specific purposes. And then the only other leniency is where there's necessity your driver's license, your passport, your ID cards. That's by law, you have no choice. Money that you have, the notes and the coins with pictures and faces on them of the queen or whatever. You have no choice with those things. All right, well, uh, go on, last question. What about having the pictures on your phone? Yeah? So you might have not took them, like family or friends might have seven uh, It's not befitting. It's not suitable to have pictures, photographs of people. It's not suitable. Videos, like I said, there is a much bigger debate and much more openness in debate amongst the scholars with videos. But photographs, not a good idea to have photographs or to keep photographs. Not a good idea to do that. Shouldn't be done. Because sometimes, uh, for me, alhamdulillah, but some, some people take pictures of you when you walk in or whatever. How could it stop them? Because they say, oh, this is an open country. They, say, oh, they always say, you know, you can't do it. So what do you do? So you're walking down the street, mashallah. <laughs> you know, people are impressed. <laughs> they want to take some pictures of you. And uh, they want to marvel. So, you know, what can you do? Some people, mashallah, Allah's created them with appearance. So if that occurs, then, I mean, what can you do? If uh, you're walking down the street and people are taking pictures of you, uh, you're right, in this, uh, in this country, there, there's actually no law against it. 
as far as I know. So if it's out of your control, it's out of your hands, that's not your responsibility then. I've seen it myself, sometimes giving classes and there are people, you notice them with their phone at the back and you can see what they are doing. But it might be in a khutbah, it might be in a class and you're not going to... And what if you stop them and they say, no, I'm not actually as well. But you can see sometimes people are taking pictures, they're doing things in hajj, tawaf, everywhere. This is not something that should be done, especially in hajj. As Shaykh Abdul Razak, he mentioned, you shouldn't take pictures of yourself in hajj. Selfies of yourself in Arafah, in Muzdalifah. He said, this is, it goes against your sincerity and intention. It will corrupt your intention. Because when you're taking that selfie of yourself in Arafah, what's the purpose, what's your intention? To go back and show everybody, obviously. To put it on your social media, or to go back and give it on your WhatsApp groups to everybody, to show people. That's the very nature of showing off. To show yourself to people and the worship you're doing. So when you take selfies of yourself in Hajj in the different places, the very nature of you taking selfies is for the purpose of showing people your worship. To the extent, as Shaykh Abdul Razak, he mentioned that some people he's noticed or he's seen or he's been told of, and they do this clearly, you see it, that they purposely pose for the shot. So they say, okay, take a picture of me, and then they say, okay, wait, wait. Go on, go on. So they're not making dua really. There's no dua, nothing. It's just just for the shot. Make sure you get the, the Kaaba in the back as well, and got my hands making dua, ayuah. And they, they take the shot. And they're not really making dua, nothing. Nothing. It's just the shot. So afterwards, when people see the shot, it'll be a nice pose with his hands down, focused, Kaaba in the background, and it's all a pose. He's just posing for that shot. So everybody must be careful with these cameras and photographs. It is a big problem these days. And don't allow it to occur. Don't take pictures of your, your kids and things, photographs. Don't allow family members, explain to them it's not permissible. Show them the evidences. Videos, like I say, that's something you can investigate further. That's much more open We'll have to round off on their time is late. We'll carry on in a couple of weeks, inshallah ta'ala. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi.